So the recurring element this episode's pretty obvious. Red Squad! They even brought back, uh, I wrote down his name, David Drew Gallagher, who plays Riley Shepard, the guy on the con. So they brought him back. Loving it, loving it. Um, this is a Jake and Nog episode. Now the reason I point that out is because, you remember how I mentioned the whole ensemble cast thing of DS9? I think stuff like this is a very big reason why it got that reputation. I've already kind of talked about this before. But the fact that we're willing to do an entire episode about Nog and Jake, who are C-listers, by the way, that's awesome. That's great. In fact, it's not even the last time we'll get that in both cases, because there's at least one Jake-heavy episode coming up and a Nog-heavy episode that's coming up as well. I love it. I love it. Um, <clears throat> so, <laughs> let's 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 move on to the episode proper. Now, I'm going to go and admit something weird. As much as I'm just excited about this episode, this is usually on my skip list. And I don't have a good reason of why. It's a problem I have every now and again where something is so... It's kind of painful to watch, you know what I mean? No, no, that doesn't get it across. Because it's not like it's bad. This is a good episode. And it's not like the acting is bad. The acting is good. It's not like the script is bad. There's one, actually two notable exceptions to the script being bad. But other than those nitpicks, you know, good script. But it's just painful to watch in a more or less literal way. Watching Waters fumble about and stumble. I, 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 I say without hyperbole that I did a better job managing an Arby's then this guy did captaining a starship. And, yeah, you could say, obviously, those are two different things. But that's kind of my point, is that he is so amazingly unqualified for the job. And every scene emphasizes this point. And that's what I mean by painful to watch. It's just, oh, God, what are you doing, son? <laughs> it probably doesn't help that at this point in my life, this kid is like a third my age. <laughs> so, well, that's not quite true. Probably more like... Less than half my age. Anyways. So, we find out Jake is a reporter for the NF FNS still. I told you that'd be a recurring trend. And we find out that the gentlemen are attacking the station. They were just on. Nice little point. They never say how the battle for that station went. Now, I'm going to talk ship stuff in a moment, but I swear it's relevant, so please don't hate me, okay? So... We've seen what the Defiant and the Defiant class of ships can do in combat, right? Um, we, we've seen this several times in the past. We will see this several times in the future. Now, this is actually relevant because... So the runabout turns around to try and fight the Jem'Hadar attack fighter, okay? Now that is... It's not their smallest ship, but it's like their second smallest ship. It's basically the little attack squad thing, right? It, kind of the equivalent of an escort vessel, Okay. However, we have seen many times it is hilariously overpowered by the Defiant class. So, it taking on a runabout, yeah, I'd, I'd bet on the attack fighter, too. J Nog's decision here is basically, I'm going to die fighting because I have no other choice. And you notice Jake doesn't exactly protest that. I mean, he's not exactly happy about it, but he doesn't raise any real objections. Now, that's important, and I can't believe I never caught this before, because it's foreshadowing. Nog, with experience and dire circumstances, takes command smoothly and effortlessly. It's worth noting Nog has, in many ways, more actual 
frontline experience than the cadets were about to see. And there's another problem related to it, but I'll get to that in just a second. What I'm trying to say is Nog literally is a better captain than Waters in those first few minutes of the episode. Now, he's the captain of a runabout with a crew of two, but it's still a true statement. He is then saved by the first plot hole of the episode. <laughs> I'm sorry. Space is big, and the runabout was fleeing from, uh, from the station at a relative angle that happened to be in the general direction of Cardassian space. The idea that the Valiant was near enough to be able to do anything about this is uh, astronomical odds, more or less, literally. Space is big, and remember, they're limited to warp 3 at this point in time. They're also maintaining comm silence. So they would have had to have been in sensor range and close enough to be able to get here quickly enough at warp 3 before the runabout's destroyed. Those are insanely long odds. That's the first plot hole. I'm willing to forgive it, but I have to point it out because that is insane. Now, Nog, you know, is like, oh my god, what do we do? There's this bit where we see multiple shots of the combat between the Valiant and the one Jem'Hadar attack craft. Now, <laughs> if this was Voyager, I wouldn't even make a point of this, because, well, to, to, to be blunt, Voyager doesn't really think about its space battles. If this was TNG, eh, I, I could at least bring it up. Maybe it was being done deliberately, but this is Deep Space Nine. These people actually call in people with real combat experience in real life to help them with their military tactics. This is Deep Space Nine at a point in time when the reins are off, so to speak, and they're actually trying very hard to maintain things with a degree of continuity and contiguousness. For all I might disagree with Iris Stephen Bear, I'll always give the man credit, especially here at the end, for trying to maintain a tight ship, no pun intended. So, I think I could say with high certainty that the next few scenes are being done deliberately, as deliberate foreshadowing. And you're thinking, what scenes, Laura? You haven't told me yet. They do a pass where they get several shots on the Jem'Hadar fighter. Jem'Hadar fighter is fine. Then they do a second pass. And a third. Then they bring out the torpedoes for what is either the fourth or the fifth. I admittedly lost track in the middle of that. My pen ran out of ink, so I had to rush and grab another one. Now, even if it was four, four full strafing runs, which land on an attack craft, they should have obliterated that thing. They don't. It takes them four or five to manage it. Now, what you're, I know what you're thinking. Lord, what's the point here? My point is this right at the beginning shows how much this crew sucks. Oh, I suppose that's unfair since, oh, they're just cadets. But yeah, that's the point. The cadet thing is the why, but the what is they suck. They have no idea what they're doing. They just barely took out a single attack craft. The weakest ship, well, second weakest ship in the Dominion fleet. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. So, <clears throat> uh, they, Nog is taken, uh, Nog, who's already in the engineering track, I mean, he wears the yellow uniform, he's immediately promoted to chief engineer. That was fast, by the way. I get it, though. You know, low crew, they need people. I mean, they've been stuck at Warp 3 for how long? <laughs> Um, I also want to point out that the first officer, did I write her name down? Karen, I want to say. She's, uh, how do I put this? She's not a good first officer. 
because what she does is unquestioningly, unhesitatingly follow the orders of her CEO without ever doing anything to actually serve as what is usually shown as a first officer in this show. A first officer's job is to question and serve as a separate viewpoint to the captain in private, and if that viewpoint is then reiterated, they then follow the orders. They then do whatever the CEO says. Duh, right? They are also supposed to serve as the personnel person, the person who deals with the actual people of the rest of the crew. So the captain can focus on the ship, and the first officer focuses on the crew. This is even true in Klingon setups in this show. I've actually mentioned this before. So she slavishly does whatever the captain says without hesitation or question, and is basically really, really bad at dealing with anyone else other than just barking orders and regulations. So she messes up on both parts of her job. The whole episode's like this, by the way. I've, I've decided not to list every single example because that would get long. Basically, every scene is re-emphasizing the point in a different way of how woefully, woefully in over their heads these kids are. Now that makes sense because they are in over their head. I said it's kind of painful to watch. Hmm. But uh next thing I want to mention is how terrible of a Captain Waters is. I'd love to reference something in Young Justice, but it'd be kind of a spoiler. So all I'm going to say is I'm reminded of a scene in Young Justice. Because Waters talks about how his captain, Captain Ramirez, you know, it was brave and, and bold, refused to get medical attention. He refused at all costs, and he stood his ground. He died the good fight, giving me command as he died. So, Captain Ramirez was a bad captain. This is emphasized many times in a lot of fiction and real life. I've started kind of mentally calling this Archer Syndrome for uh, Captain Archer over an Enterprise. Now, I know a lot of people make fun of Archer because Season 1 and Season 2 Archer was a blithering moron. No offense to Scott Bakula, but Season 1 and Season 2 Enterprise, he was a blithering moron. But when we got to Season 3 and Season 4, and he became an actual character, which I could say for all the crew of the Enterprise, um, the fact is, he made a consistent mistake several times. And that mistake is that he presumed the burden upon himself rather than trying to delegate or relegate it. Now, you could call this the Kirk mentality, and there's a degree of reasonability to that. I'm not going to argue that. But the reason I call it the Archer thing is there's a specific episode where Archer decides that the best possible person to engage in a mission is himself. And and that's really, really, really wrong. Just like I'll talk about it when we get there. I don't want to cover it here. But my point is, Archer is the captain. Now... I don't know if you know this, but it actually takes a lot, even in Starfleet, to become a captain. You have to be versed in a lot of things, and you have to have gone up the career track of officer track for some for quite some time. Kirk, there's a reason Kirk is known for being famous even before he started really being captain of the Enterprise, simply by virtue of how young he was when he became captain. That was a big point, actually, because nobody became captain that quickly. And funnily enough, that record, if I'm not mistaken, remains unbroken, even as of DS9. I could be wrong about that. Now, my point I'm trying to reach here is that Archer, as captain, should have stayed behind on the ship and been the captain. 
Instead, he took the dangerous mission upon himself and risked his life and nearly died. It did work out in the end, but let's be honest, that's not because of his command decision. In short, what Archer did was the heroic soldier action, not the intelligent captain action. And now you can see why this relates to this episode. Because what Ramirez did was stupid. From, a, from many perspectives, but especially a military perspective, what Ramirez did was incorrect. He decided that maintaining his captaincy and, and being, fighting the good fight and dying on the bridge, ordering everyone around, was more important than getting himself the medical care he needed to survive. They probably could have actually saved his life if he'd gotten medical care immediately. This is Star Trek, after all. They had a fully functional med bay. <laughs> Even without made, main power, they still have medical supply and medical support. But instead, he died, and this is the second reason that that's a huge mistake. Because that then imparted that idea of the brave, glorious, yes, chin held high, reaching for, for the great... I don't even know. You know what I'm talking about. Like, the romanticization of that kind of martyrdom was imbued onto Waters. And what does Waters act like for the entire episode? This is ignoring the fact that Waters is literally addicted to stimulants in order to keep going <laughs> amidst all of this because he is so ludicrously in over his head. But he's got this ideal because he just watched a Starfleet captain die bravely on the bridge while, while accomplishing the mission. So that's what he's got to do. It informs so much of his decisions. Not only just the story itself, but listen to the way the actor tells the story the way he relates it to Nog. He's hero-worshipping. Of course he is. He's a kid whose life was basically saved by this hero, by the hero he is worshipping. So, <clears throat> Waters um, screws up completely. Now, Nog jumps into this, obviously. <laughs> Aaron Eisenberg has actually gone on record as saying that this is among his favorite episodes, and I can see why. Like I said, it's a Nog and Jake episode, but really it's mostly a Nog episode. Jake portrays... He's the correspondent, the war correspondent here. He's the, he's the reporter who's in the middle of a battlefield. And the way they abuse and misuse him is, is almost hilarious in how painful it is. There's this one bit where they literally arrest him at gunpoint. They never state the charges. They just arrest him at gunpoint. Even in wartime, you still need a reason to do that, at least here in, you know, real life amongst most of the actual UN militaries. No, really. I actually did some research on this. Did you know journalists are literally protected under special clauses by international law during wartime? That's been true for decades at this point. So, um... Curious what his reasoning was. Of course, we know what his reasoning was, and this is number reason number two why Waters is a terrible captain. He has such a lack of faith in his own leadership that he perceives Jake to be a threat to said leadership. That he thinks that Jake, who had a casual conversation with a crew member, is jeopardizing the safety of this ship and this crew. You need to keep your distance, son. <laughs> Boy, if that's your problem, well, 
I mean, this might literally be a forest for the trees kind of scenario. Which link brings me to poor leadership number three. There's this bit where they actually do the mission and they get the intel on the command ship. The first thing Waters does is he makes the wrong call. Because what he has just done is gathered valuable intel behind enemy lines. Now, I, I know this is going to sound strange, forgive me, but believe it or not, valuable intel is a lot less valuable if it's not in the hands of someone who can use it. So by sheer virtue of the fact... Oh, by the way, fun fact, they never get this intel to Starfleet in this episode. Nog uh, Collins, I think? Yes, Nog, Collins, and Jake are the only survivors. They didn't exactly have time to do a data dump of the sensor log when they were getting out of the escape pod. So all that valuable intel... Poof! Bye! It's gone! <laughs> Good job, Waters! If it's not obvious, I'm being so dismissive specifically because I understand how unqualified I would be to be a captain. The difference is I acknowledge that. And I know that. And if it was thrust upon me, I would do something to get that situation resolved as quickly as possible. Because I know I shouldn't be a commander. Or a captain, rather. But Waters is like, no, I will do this... For the greater good. <laughs> Come on, dude. He, okay, so then, so he doesn't get the intel back. And I'm, I know what you're thinking, well, hang on, why? Well, funnily enough, this is such a bad decision, it's actually two bad decisions in one. So not only does he not get the intel back, he decides to use the intel to do a surprise strike on the first Jem'Hadar battleship. Uh, this is the Jem'Hadar Dreadnought Carrier, for those of you who play STO. A ship I actually wanted for a really long time. I even did a simulator. There's a website online where you can make a build for a ship and kind of test out how it would work. It's a cool thing. I recommend it. I don't remember the site right now. Please forgive me. You can just find it on Google. But anyways, the point being, it was a ship I really wanted because it's a really awesome ship. And then the Gamma Quadrant expansion came out and totally invalidated it. Funnily enough, my main ship now is a Jem'Hadar Carrier. <sighs> It's a pretty ship. What do you want from me? <laughs> this is also the first time it's shown. It will only be shown a couple of times after this, but this is the big ship. This is a command ship, basically. Uh, the, like I, the reason I was relating the STO thing, really, aside from the fact that I like talking about STO, is the fact that it's a dreadnought. Now, there aren't all that many dreadnoughts in Star Trek of, of classification, especially at this point in history. That's the thing that they want to go up against with the with this escort that had trouble with one Jem'Hadar attack craft. Think about that for a second. Now I know, they found some kind of weakness, because that's Star Trek's thing. And this is how the episode's clever, because it's easy to think that they'll go ahead and take out this one little weak point, and that'll destroy the ship, right? Because, well, let's be honest, that's kind of how Star Trek does. No, this is late Deep Space Nine. That doesn't work here. One of my favorite little tidbits is they never explain why it doesn't work. There's a lot of possible explanations there. Maybe their scans were wrong. Maybe they read the scans wrong. Maybe the Dominion actually noticed the flaw and fixed it themselves. Maybe they had something in place to counteract the flaw that nobody else knew about. But no, one way or another, they made a mistake. Of course they did. And what I love about this, the episode makes this whole point clear as they're, you know, they're, they're getting pummeled, and they're actually losing people, as they're just trying to get close enough to get this shot in, and they get the shot in, and there's this really big explosion that does absolutely nothing. My only complaint about that scene is that the explosion looks really big, and it probably shouldn't. Consider that that's an explosion that could envelop two 
Enterprise Ds, just to give you a little idea of the scale here. Either way, it does nothing, which, yeah, there's a term for that on TV tropes. It's called Reality Ensues. And there's this wonderful bit, and again, praise to the actors, where there's just silence on the bridge for several solid seconds afterwards because they are so stunned and scared. And they should be scared because they're about to die. <laughs> like, that's it right there. If they had warped away that second, they might have been able to survive. Maybe. But even that's not a guarantee. After all, ships can fight at warp, as is demonstrated in this very episode. So, yeah, that was probably game, the moment that happened. Yeah. The episode makes it very clear how utterly overwhelmed they are. You know, um, the, the greatest story in the Dominion War. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and, and Jake needs to write this great story. This is destiny. This is purpose that you're here. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, the fact that Nog just completely buys into this because of his desire, his urge, his ambition, for lack of a better way to put it, to drive himself to become part of Starfleet, to become higher ranked in Starfleet, that that's his goal, his acquisition, if you will, that he's trying to, to work towards. The episode makes it clear so many times over and over and over. There's this bit where they first see the Dreadnought, and the first thing they do is hesitate. There are several seconds showing the crew just freaking out just at the sight of the thing. And they give us numbers, too. Seven officers, 35 cadets. Keep that in mind for later. And by later, I mean like ten minutes from now. And by ten minutes, I like one minute from now. God, my numbers are all wrong today. But not that one, because I wrote it down. Seven officers, 35 cadets. There's this lovely bit where the episode gives us a very nice personal moment with Collins and Jake. Collins describes what, briefly, what living on the moon is like, living on Luna is like. And they talk a little bit about, you know, oh, my grandfather still calls them, you know, Luna whatever's. It's an old thing. Even people on Luna don't actually call it Luna. That's an Earth term. And, you know, going out, there's the city, of course, but then you go out into the, outside the dome and there's just, you know, the lack of air and lack of things. So we'd put on suits and we'd go and watch the moon rise and just, there's this whole wonderful bit where she describes it. It's, she does a wonderful job of it. It's actually, I think, only our second really indication of what it's like being on the moon, uh, in Star Trek. Our first being a very brief reference during the movie First Contact, where Riker talks about it to Zephyr Cochran. So it's a nice little bit of world building, but the real point is it's a bit of character building, a bit of personal building. Because what happens here is Waters finds out that one of his crewmen's been crying, and he flips out. What are you doing? You crying? Now, I know a captain's job is not necessarily to be there for his or her crew. That depends on your particular captaining style. Jellico, for example, probably wouldn't... Actually, no, I take that back. I don't think even Jellico would have responded like that. He would have been harsh but firm. He would have been like, look, this is not something I can afford right now. If you're having emotional instability, I understand, but I'm going to pull you away from active duty as a result, you understand? Take a few minutes, take your time, speak to the counselor if you need to. That would be Jellico. Waters doesn't even go that far. He just locks down, has a discussion with her in the briefing room, like it's a, like it's a punishment. And then threatens to lock Jake up as a consequence of this. And then actually locks Jake up as a consequence of this. 
but I'm sorry, I was talking about the personal perspective, because we see the perspective of three people in this episode. We see the outsider, the insider, and someone who doesn't know where they belong. That would be Jake, Collins, and Nog, respectively. Jake, of course, looks at this whole thing like they're all insane. He has this wonderful bit where he says, my dad's Cisco, and Cisco wouldn't do this. Now, whether that's true or not is debatable, but the point he's trying to make is quite valid. This is something that a seasoned veteran crew of the best ship in the fleet would hesitate to do. They, of course, say, Red Squad, Red Squad, Red Squad, and Nog, who's in the middle, takes a minute to decide which side he wants to stand on. Nog, of course, then doubles down to Jake, and it takes until he sees the actual combat scenario, something he is very familiar with in actions, thanks to the fact that he's actually worked on the Defiant in combat before, till he finally realizes which side of the line he's actually on. So he bails. He grabs Collins. He, they grab Jake. They get the hell out of Dodge. Uh, that actually leads to the second plot hole I just want to mention very briefly. If you pay attention, the episode bothers to show this. There are a total of three escape pods that manage to get away. One of them gets shot. Another one gets destroyed by the explosion of the Valium. The only escape pod, multiple escape pods try to get away. The only one that gets away successfully is the one containing the three heroes. That's, that's a little bit fishy by itself, but what's even more fishy is that, despite the fact that they see an escape pod escaping, the Jem'Hadar battleship, which has all the time in the world to destroy them or capture them, does neither. And they are, in fact, rescued by the Defiant later. No explanation is ever offered for this. Sure. That being said, I mentioned those numbers earlier. Of the 75, 7 officers and 35 cadets, 1 survived. I know Jake and Nog survived, but they weren't part of that original equation. One person lived through all that, of that original crew. Because of the idiocy and stupidity of Captain Ramirez and Cadet Waters. Nog's admission at the end is, is harsh and powerful and really, really moves the character forward in a different direction. His acknowledgement and understanding of how far he was willing to push for what he wanted helps to give us insight into why these cadets were willing to push as far as they were for what they wanted. As harsh as I am sounding, and I am, Waters got them all killed, the fact is he is still sympathetic in his own right. He was a kid who was taught the wrong thing and took that lesson the wrong way. And let's be completely honest, how many of us cannot say the same? <sighs> One person out of 42. Good episode, which is good. I needed this because, well, you see what's next week, right? I'll see you around, guys.